before we return to our studies in the Word of God concerning the office of elder, in particular the study for this afternoon, I want to just remind you that we are focusing in this brief series on the nature of the office, and we will later on get to the qualifications of the office. And when we come to the New Testament, we don't find a formal definition, but rather a number of word pictures that describe the relationship between elders and the people. And so far we've studied five of these word pictures. Uh, The elders and the people are likened to the relationship between elders and a clan or town, like overseers over a workforce, like governors over a province, as teachers with a group of learners, and as stewards over a household. And now, this afternoon, we want to look at the theme of them being as servants of God and his people. Before we do this, let's pray for the help and the grace of God. Holy Father, we thank you and bless you that you granted unto us the special privilege, every one of us actually of being servants of you and servants of one another. And in a special way, you have set apart those who would be leaders in the church to be eminently your servants and servants of your people. And we plead with you, Lord, that you would give us understanding of what this means, what to expect, and what to aspire for, what to pray for. We pray that your spirit would be directing us in every way as we consider your word this afternoon. We pray this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. In general terms, this picture of elders as servants of God and his people, in general terms, is set forth in the verse uh, that we find in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. And uh, perhaps you want to turn with me to that passage. I should have announced that text before. But this is a passage in which uh, Paul tells Timothy how to be a good minister. And his whole book, really, is telling him how to be a good minister. And so he says in chapter 4 and verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, in other words, if you teach all these things, do all these things I've been telling you, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. Now, the word translated minister in the New King James Version is the word diakonos, the common word for deacon or servant. And therefore, the phrase is simply translated a good servant in the English Standard, also the New American Standard. And both translations are essentially the same because a minister ministers, or in other words, he serves somebody else's needs. But in popular usage, the word minister is often used for a word that is just descriptive of the occupation of a pastor. Every year as I fill out my taxes, and sometimes if I fill out some other forms, when I have to list my occupation, the commonly accepted and understood term is that I put in the word minister, because that's what is expected. And therefore, the word minister because of this, has something of a starchy tone. It conveys the idea of the stiff professional moralist that wears a black shirt and a clerical collar, and he performs boring religious ceremonies. 
and the parent whispers to the child, shh, the, the, the minister's coming in. And there's this idea of the minister as being some kind of a austere person that's up there and he does these strange things and says these strange words. And it doesn't have the humble tone that it comes across, though, when we translate this word servant. But in reality, if we understand what that word minister really means, it's not a pompous term at all. It is one of the most humble words that can be used to describe, describe and identify what a pastor is. He is simply a servant. And when this word is used in the Bible of pastors, it is used in three different ways, and we have set these three ways out in the outlines that have been provided in your bulletins. In the first place, it is used to describe them as servants of God or of, and of Christ. In the verse that we just noted, 1 Timothy 4, 6, the full description is that Timothy will be a good servant of Jesus Christ. Now, we frequently run into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this phrase, servant of God. And sometimes God uses the phrase in a different way. He will call somebody my servant. Or, so you see, servant of God, or as God speaks, God says my servant. And as such, the term is often used to highlight the fact that the man being spoken of is a faithful, obedient servant of God. And used in this way, there's scarcely any other Old Testament description of a man that is a higher honor, although a humble honor, than God himself to say of that man, he is my servant. This is a phrase that's used abundantly in the Old Testament, and it forms the backdrop of what we understand in the New Testament. I went through the concordance, and I was struck with how many times this is in the Old Testament, and I've just given you a few samples there in your outlines. And I want to just quote, first of all, from Exodus chapter 14 and verse 31. After Moses stretched out his hand over the Red Sea, you remember the waters parted, the Israelites, they walked through on the dry land, and then afterwards, when the Egyptians were trapped in the middle, the waters returned and drowned the Egyptians in the sea. And we read in verse 31, Thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt. So the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So this mighty act that God did, and it was symbolically at least, as Moses lifted his rod up and the seas were parted, we read that they believed the Lord and they believed his servant Moses. Now turn with me please to Numbers chapter 12. And here we read in this passage of the time when Aaron and Miriam spoke against Moses. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not also spoken through us? So the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron and Miriam to come to the tabernacle of the meeting. And we read of what the Lord says in verses 6 through 8. And notice the emphasis on Moses being God's servant. Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? If there is a prophet among you, excuse me, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. 
I will speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? You catch the stress that this is one that, in a sense, although he has this humble term, he's a servant, is an exalted term because he's the servant of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 34 and verse 5, we read, So Moses, the servant of the Lord, this is at the end of his career, he died there in the land of Moab. And so it's as if when the tombstone is set up and the epitaph is put there, what is he called? He is called the servant of the Lord. In verse 8 of that chapter, we read that the Israelites mourned for Moses for 30 days. And then in verses 10 through 11, we read, Since then, there has not arisen in Israel a prophet like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face in all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to do. And it was this one who was called Moses, the servant of the Lord. And now turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 1. I want to read, beginning with verse 1 from Joshua, chapter 1. After the death of Moses, and what's he called? The very beginning of the first words of this book. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord. It came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. And then we read in verse 7, he says to Joshua, Only be strong and very courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. Verse 13, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is giving you rest and is giving you this land. You catch the implication in this chapter here. The Lord highly honors Moses as one through whom he performed great works, but also because this was the man that preeminently received God's commandments, and he not didn't just hear them, but he faithfully passed them on to the people, and he faithfully carried them out. Now chapter 8, notice what we read in Joshua chapter 8, beginning with verse 30. Now Joshua built an altar to the Lord God of Israel in Mount Ebal, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as it is written in the book of the law of Moses, an altar of whole stones over which no man has wielded an iron tool. And they offered on it burnt offerings to the Lord and sacrificed peace offerings. Similar language is used again in verse 33. And then again in chapter 11, in verse 12, we read, So all the cities of those kings and all their kings, Joshua struck with the edge of the sword. He utterly destroyed them as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. And there's a similar statement again. 
Moses is a servant of the Lord. He received the commands. He passed them on faithfully. Finally, after the book of Joshua tells us of all the times in which Joshua uh, did what Moses told him to do, Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded him to do. Interestingly, after these many times in which Joshua is reminded this was Moses to serve the Lord, now we read at the end of the book in Joshua 24, 29, Now it came to pass after these things that Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died being 110 years old. He stood in Moses' shoes. He too was the servant of the Lord, carrying out the word of the Lord. In Psalm 18 and Psalm 36, the title is given, The Psalm of David, the Servant of the Lord. In Psalm 89, written by Ethan the Ezraite, we see how it celebrates the Davidic covenant. And it quotes the words spoken by God in verse 3. Psalm 89, 3, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to my servant David. And why did God call David his servant? It was because he was a man after God's own heart. He was, it reminds us of the time when Samuel, after being told, you know, it wasn't this son of, of Jesse. No, it wasn't that son. Samuel thought, oh, surely this is the one. And again and again, says, God says, no, not this one. And it was because it was the youngest one. And why did God choose that young one? Because he was a man after God's own heart. And so in Psalm 89, in verse 20, he says, I have found my servant David with my holy oil. I have anointed him. Well, these passages are only a sample even about David. If we had time, we could go to many more such Old Testament texts. But now, flip with me to one other passage, and I want to go now to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. All these references in the Old Testament to the servant of the Lord, or to my servant, they form the backdrop, really, of what we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1. The Corinthians had false ideas of what preachers were to be. And Paul has to correct them. In the first letter, also he's still doing it as we're hearing in 2 Corinthians. And notice how he puts it in chapter 4 and verse 1. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now in chapter 3, he has had to reprove the Corinthians for their party spirit, each one of them choosing their favorite teacher. One saying, I am of Paul. Another says, I am of Apollos. And another says, I am of Cephas. And later on, the real spiritual ones, they say, well, I am of Christ. Well, in sharp contrast to their carnal evaluation of preachers based on their speaking style and the like, Paul, in chapter 4 and verse 1, says, Let a man so consider us, not as these eloquent people and this one's better than the other and the like. What's the real thing you need to consider? It's this, that we are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And what matters is not the eloquence of their favorite preacher. It's this, is he a true servant of Christ? Is he obedient to the word of Christ? And does he faithfully carry out Christ's commands? 
Or is he a charlatan making it up as he goes and drawing attention to himself, serving himself? Or is he faithful, an obedient servant of Christ? So in a very large number of places, this word servant is used to refer to a servant of God or a servant of Christ. And now in the second place, as we consider this doctrine in this broad sweep, we notice that the scriptures also speak of pastors as servants of the church. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 and 25, speaking of Christ's body, which is the church, verse 24, and verse 25, Paul speaks of himself as a minister, some translations, or as a servant of Christ's body, the church. And of this church, he says in verse 25, I became a minister, I became a servant, according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. So I became a servant of the church, your servant. And yet, of course, it wasn't that I'm going to, because now I'm serving you, everything changes, and I don't have to take orders from God anymore, I'll take orders from you. No, I am your servant, but at the same time, I have a solemn charge to communicate the word that's given to me by God. And one of the most basic teachings that the Lord Jesus gave to his disciples was that they were servants of one another. We express this in the hymn that we just sang. Remember what Jesus said when his disciples were disputing about which one was greatest. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. As the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. But what do these passages that highlight leaders being servants of God and then also servants of the church? What do they teach us about the kind of man that we should be looking for as we look for pastors in this place? What do they teach pastors about the way they should approach the ministry? Well, on a lower level, they remind us of the servant's heart that pastors are to have. It doesn't mean, of course, that to prove that they have a servant's heart, they have to be volunteers to give just as much time and even more than others to fixing up the church building and the like. You remember, of course, Acts chapter 6 tells us that they're not to forsake the word of God in order to serve tables. And so... It doesn't mean that they've got to prove themselves servants by doing all the other jobs. And yet, when they don't have to forsake the word of God in order to serve, when there are those opportunities, they will have a servant's heart, and they will seek to serve in various ways. Now, the concept of serving the church, it also should affect the way they engage in their spiritual labors. To a great extent, godly pastors discover that they have been given the job of being a slave, and the slave spends and is spent. As Paul puts it, the ministry requires long hours, and when everything within a man cries out for mental relief, he will press on. He will willingly give of his time to minister to those in need. He will pray that God will give him a servant's heart to such an extent that he counts it joy to spend himself and to give his energies in the service of the church. But the overwhelming emphasis of Scripture is not so much on the fact that pastors are servants of the church, but above all, 
It is emphasized that they are God's servants. And the man of God, therefore, above all, has to remember that he is the servant of the Lord. Let's remember there are times when God's people will make claims upon a pastor that come into conflict with his being a servant of the Lord, with his supreme calling of being God's servant. You remember Saul. He was a tragic example of a man that was consumed with the desire of pleasing men. He couldn't stand it when the women were singing praises of David. And David was filled, remember, with great zeal, with great, with great indignation for the glory of God. David, the servant of the Lord, he, he couldn't stand it when Goliath would come into the camp. And David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? But as soon as the women begins to sing of David's praises, Saul is filled with envy. And why is it? It's because in contrast with David, who's consumed with zeal for God, Saul is consumed with the desire for the praises of men. And he's... And later on, you remember when Saul, when God tested him as to whether or not he would obey God's commission, whether he would be like the servant of the Lord, like Moses was, obeying God. When God tested him, he sent him out to destroy the Amalekites. Saul couldn't bear to displease the people. He said, in excuse, well, the people did this, and I, and I had to do this because of what the people wanted. And why does he have this kind of an attitude? It's because in his earthly mindedness, he craved the praises of men more than the praises of God. Time after time, even God's people seek to exert pressure on the pastor to fulfill their wishes. And whenever these desires, and many times their wishes are biblical and they ought to be considered, but whenever these desires come into conflict with God's word, or with the divine priorities that need to govern the pastor, the pastor must settle it in his heart that above all he is the servant of the Lord. He will obey God rather than men. And when pressure is put on him to introduce changes in the worship of God or in the corporate life of the church that undermine biblical worship or undermine biblical churchmanship, he needs to determine that above all he is a servant of God. And so when he looks around and he sees the apparent success of those that have changed their services and their programs with a view to being more seeker-sensitive, as they put it, and he wants to enjoy the success that he sees out, that's out there, he wants to enjoy the popularity that is being enjoyed by others, he needs to remember, the pastor must remember, that at bottom his desire to please men is a desire to please himself. He wants people to love him and gather around him. And so God says to Jeremiah, are you seeking great things for yourself? Do not seek them. Jeremiah 45, 5. And what God says to Jeremiah, this is yellow lighter stuff, yellow highlighter stuff in the Bible. And if you don't underline or use highlighter in your Bible, these words ought to be emblazoned on your minds. Are you seeking great things for yourself? This applies to any of us, especially to pastors though. Are you seeking great things for yourself? Why then are you teaching the Bible? Why do you profess to be God's servant? Why do you profess to be the servant of the Lord? Being God's servant means obeying God's word and living for God's glory. And so to any young man considering the ministry, if your motive is becoming a famous preacher, if your motive is being, building an impressive church, 
if your motive is getting to asked to preach at all kinds of conferences, if your motive is promoting greatness for yourself, you're in the wrong calling. There are no academy awards given to, on earth to, to people in the ministry, and there shouldn't be. Our grand motive must be that of pleasing our master, and only then will we hear those words in the last day, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Lord. Well, this brings me to my final and third point, and oftentimes I spend most of our time on the first point. You've heard me say that a thousand times, giving an excuse, but we're actually going to spend more time on this final point. They are, as we blend these concepts together, servants of Christ and of his people. And especially what I want to do is I want to open up 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. And as our brother Drew has taken us through these passages, these chapters, it's been very helpful to have larger sections so we might see the flow of thought. But what we're going to do is zoom in here on one verse in particular, but to get the context, I want to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And especially these words, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus, the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. Now, if we were to try to capture the essence of man's apostasy from God in the Garden of Eden, we would say this is the essence of man's rebellion. It was a departure from God as the fountain of Adam's blessedness, as the supreme object of his love, it was a departure from this grand thing about which he was to be encircled. And it was instead the shriveling up of his soul within himself so that his little old self begins to be the whole center of his being rather than the great and glorious God of the universe. The all-encompassing sum of man's depravity it consists in his habitual inclination to treat himself in the way that he should treat God. Man is to love God supremely and ultimately, but instead he loves himself supremely, and he seeks himself as his ultimate end. He sets himself up as the center of his life, his manifold thoughts, his anxious cares, his busy endeavors, they all terminate on himself. But before Adam sinned, God was the beginning and end of his being. God was his all-absorbing interest. God was his desire, his delight. God was his all in all. But when Adam sinned, 
As Luther so graphically puts it, he became curved in upon himself. What God was previously to Adam, now it's replaced by self. Selfishness became the reigning principle of his life. And that which reigns supreme in Adam's fallen heart, it has become the self-centered idol of every human being born into this world. And if we were able to search the inward thoughts and the inward motives of every man and woman throughout the world apart from God's grace, what would we see? What are they pursuing? What is the governing principle of everything they do? What is the center towards which their thoughts bend? Are they laboring for the glory of God as their grand pursuit? Or are they laboring for themselves? When the investor anxiously checks the numbers being posted on Wall Street, is he seeking wealth for the glory of God or himself? When the soldier even, who faces incoming fire, he rushes toward the foe, is he doing this for the honor of God or that he might achieve immortal glory for himself? When the concert pianist practices eight hours a day, running her, making her fingers bone-weary and raw as she practices, memorizing every line of some grand piano concerto. What's her dream? Is it the praises of God? The pleasure of God? It is that she might get the applause of an immense audience. And what is it that men and women live for? What is it that fills their thoughts and their desires? Is it the advance of God? Is it the advance of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of self? It is self that reigns in the hearts of rulers. It's self that drives their businessmen in their work for long hours. It is self that governs the TikTok socialite. It is self that chooses even the religion of the anxious soul. This is what lies at the root of all of our sins. This is what makes us ungodly, unlike God. This is the essence of ungodliness itself. How we could wish that among the various endeavors of men, there was one order of men, one occupation that they could choose, one pursuit that would be exempt from this terrible, detestable principle. But even the ministry is not exempt from this corruption. That's how perverse we are. How we can wish that none of those that stand behind pulpits, none of those that have the title pastor, are influenced by this kind of selfish rot. How we can wish that every pastor, without reservation, without duplicity, could say with Paul, we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants. For Jesus' sake. The preceding verses, Paul has been vindicating the ministry of the apostles. And he's been doing this against the unjust accusations of those who had charged the apostles with walking in craftiness and handling the word of God deceitfully. And he avouches their sincerity. We weren't a bunch of fakes among you. He asserts that they had renounced these hidden things of shame these deceitful methods, and instead that they had commended themselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And now in verse 5, 
In contrast with the self-serving pretensions of some, he assures these Corinthians, we do not preach ourselves. We do not preach with the self-serving ulterior motives that are insinuated by these accusers. We preach Christ Jesus, the Lord. In my preparations for this part of our series, I discovered an address that was given by a preacher named David Bostwick, which I had never, who I'd never heard of before. And this was given at an assembly of pastors in Philadelphia on May 25th of 1758. And on a website that contains links to this man's sermon, some of them, and some of his writings, there's a yellowed picture, those old photos, you know, that are very yellow, a yellowed picture of the church building in which he preached for 10 years, the First Presbyterian Church in Jamaica, Long Island. And at the time when the picture was taken, the two-story church building with its towering steeple, and it dated back to 1662 when this church was first built. It was at that time the oldest standing church building in North America. And in the sermon that I discovered, it's a sermon really, but it's an address to, to preachers. He makes reference to the death of the man that who he refers to as perhaps the greatest pillar in this part of Zion's buildings, namely Jonathan Edwards. Considered by some to be the greatest philosophy or theologian that America ever produced, Jonathan Edwards was mightily used of God, not just to write theology, but in the conversion of many souls in what was called the Great Awakening back in the mid-1700s. In Bostwich's sermon, it was just shy of two months after the death of Jonathan Edwards. And I mention this sermon because I'm heavily in debt to Bostwich for much, about, much of what I'm about to say in connection with the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 5. And in this verse, Paul describes his ministry as that of being servants of Christ and of his people. And in this place, we encounter a threefold description of his ministry. And we've set out this uh, threefold description in your outlines. First of all, it means not preaching ourselves. Paul says, We do not preach ourselves. In contrast to the selfishness that has reigned among men ever since the first sin, Paul repudiated that self-love that all too often characterizes the labors even of pastors. But before we explain what he means when he says we don't preach ourselves, allow me just to mention a couple things that this is not. First, there is, there is a self-love that's not Sinful. It's not inconsistent with godliness. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor as ourselves. The threats of God's word assume that we are concerned about our own self, well, eternal well-being. Certain rewards are promised to those that are faithful. So it's not sinful for a pastor to have a suitable regard for his own future and everlasting well-being. 1 Timothy 4.16, Paul says to Timothy, Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Continue in them, and he gives this motive, For in doing this you will save both yourself 
and those who hear you. So it's not inconsistent with a certain kind of self-love that's assumed in the Bible. But secondly, his statement, we do not preach ourselves, it does not imply that a pastor has to have a total disregard for his reputation. It's not wrong to be, some, be concerned in a certain sense with, uh, with a person's, a preacher's reputation. To a great extent, you see a pastor's usefulness is dependent upon his reputation. And to a large extent, the advance of Christ's kingdom is connected with the reputation of the pastor as a man of godliness and integrity. And if his character is smeared by false accusations and insinuations, this sows suspicion in the hearts and the minds of his hearers. And it undermines the ability for for him to do them good. It puts a roadblock in their receptivity to what he preaches. And this is why, on repeated occasions, Paul even vindicates himself as he's writing to these Corinthians. And among the qualifications he gives for the overseers, that he has a good reputation among those that are without. 1 Timothy 3, 7. So what does Paul mean when he says, we do not preach ourselves? Well, in general terms, he is referring to that which stands in direct opposition to the honor of God. It's when the pastor in any way, however subtle it might be, sets himself up in the place of God and the esteem and the affections and the purposes of the congregation and of his hopes and desires for himself. And in our ministry, it disposes us to love ourselves in the same manner that we are to to love the God of heaven. We replace the love of God with the love of self. It sets up self, you see, in direct contention with God. And in particular, men may be said to preach themselves when the substance of their sermons is governed by the underlying motive of promoting themselves. When the substance of their sermons is the enticing words of man's wisdom, calculated to cater to man's curiosity with fascinating speculations, rather than to pierce their hearts with convicting truth, he's preaching himself. And sometimes this tendency, it manifests itself by impressive displays of his knowledge of philosophy and current thought patterns. And ostensibly, it's that he might refute these these heretical ideas. But in his heart, he, he sprinkles these things into his sermons to oppress his hearers. He's preaching himself. Or he may seek to impress his hearers by weaving together an intricate display, perhaps, of all these hard to understand biblical prophecies and they tie them to all kinds of events that are happening out in the world so that people will say, wow, I never saw that in the Bible before. That's amazing. Almost like Simon Magus, he's the great power of God. Or he might fill his sermons with one story after another drawn from his own life. As I read some sermons and some preachers, I, I wonder how, they must live five lives. I can't figure out how they have so many stories. And it's one thing to humbly draw a lesson from our own experience. Paul does that himself. But it's all too easy to engage in self-promotion, however self-deprecating one does it. We live in what John R. Stott calls the shameful cult of human personalities. So preaching ourselves, it's involved when the substance of the very things that we preach uh, uh, they are the underlying motive. The underlying motive is promoting ourselves. 
And the preaching ourselves, it can also express itself in the form as well as in the subject matter of the sermon. It's possible to do the work of God and yet to do it for ourselves rather than God. We're talking about motive here. Jehu did the work of the Lord. He executed the vengeance of Yahweh on the household of Ahab. He broke down the images of Baal in Israel. But he spoiled everything that he did when in his pride he says to Jehonadab, Come with me and see my zeal for the Lord. 2 Kings 10.16 Now in our circles, passionate, fervent preaching is admired. And so in his pride, you see, a man may seek to promote his reputation as a preacher by excelling in practical and earnest preaching. Or perhaps the temptation to be witty can be a snare to another preacher. Spurgeon has such a sense of humor, he had to have restrained that that tendency to to the utmost. James Denny puts it, no man can give it at once the impressions that he himself is clever and that Jesus Christ is mighty to save. So the form of the sermon, the motive and the aura of it, can be preaching oneself. Preaching with financial considerations in view. This is another manifestation of a self-serving ministry. Micah reproves the leaders of Jerusalem for this very thing. He says, her heads judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money, Micah 3.11. Isaiah denounces the, the watchmen of Israel. He says they're dumb dogs, they can't bark. They're greedy dogs that never have enough. They all look to their own way, everyone for his own gain, Isaiah 56. Now it's true that the Lord has ordained that they who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. It's not wrong for a pastor to accept a salary. But what I'm concerned about here is the case of the man for whom money rules his ministry. Money dictates what he includes and what he doesn't include in his sermons. He doesn't want to offend the rich givers. He doesn't want to get in trouble with this one or that one. And so in both in 1 Timothy 3, 3 and Titus 1, 7, among the qualifications for the eldership is that a man must not be greedy for money. In a contrast with this kind of avarice, Paul could say to the Corinthians, I seek not yours, not what you have to give me, but you. David Bostwick, in this address, he vividly describes the mindset of those who preach themselves. And here I want to just pass on some excerpts. It will go with them into their private studies, and there will choose their subject and methodize their sermons, and oftentimes make them more attentive to mere words and ornaments than the sacred truths of God. And hence, instead of plain and serious addresses that might tend to melt and change hard and unregenerate hearts, they will abound with trifling speculations, set off with glittering toys, with figures of rhetoric and arts arts of elocution, And thus in their preparations for public service, he's still talking about the pastor in the study, instead of consulting seriously what shall I say and how shall I say it so as to best please and glorify God and do good to the souls of men, self will make them consult what shall I say 
And how shall I deliver it so as to be thought an excellent preacher and to be admired and to be applauded by all who hear me? And when self has done its work in their study and made their sermon, it will attend them even to the pulpit. And there it will form their very countenance and gesture and modulate their voice and animate their delivery and put the very accent and emphasis upon words and syllables that all may be calculated to please rather than profit and to recommend themselves and secure a vain applause rather than recommend Jesus Christ. So the sermon's preached. But now when the sermon is ended, self goes home with the preacher and makes him much more solicitous to know whether he is admired and applauded than whether he has prevailed for the awakening and conversion of souls. And so powerful is this principle in some that they could even be glad in their heart, if it wasn't shameful to do this, to ask their heroes in direct terms, did you like it? Did you admire it? Did you applaud what, what I said? But in this, but as this will not be done, he knows it would be terrible, self will put them on some topic of conversation with their hearers that will tend, if possible, to draw out their recommendation. And if they can perceive that they are highly thought of, they rejoice greatly as having attained their end. But if they find they are esteemed but weak or best at best common preachers, they are dejected and disappointed as having missed what they think the grand prize of the day. Well, this picture that Bostwich paints is a very ugly picture. As Walter Chantry once said, a self-serving minister is one of the most loathsome sights in all of the world. Well, this is what it is to preach self. And in contrast to that, the second sub-point here, Paul speaks about preaching Christ Jesus, the Lord. And with respect to the subject matter of that kind of ministry, in general, it includes the whole gospel of salvation as it's found in Christ Jesus. It includes preaching about his glorious person, his eternal glory, his incarnation, his humiliation for our sakes. It includes preaching how he pledged even in eternity past to be the substitute for his people. It preaching his substitutionary atonement on the cross, his powerful resurrection, his triumphant ascension, his perpetual and prevailing intercession in behalf of his people. These, as well as all those other truths that make up the gospel, these are the things that are the subject matter of our preaching, Paul says. Paul sums them up in this verse with the name Christ Jesus the Lord. It is preaching Christ the Messiah, the anointed of God, set apart to be our mediator. He is Jesus, the Savior of men, who saves his people from their sins, both its guilt and its power. He is the Lord, the King of his church, who has the government of the vast universe in general, and especially the government of the church, upon his shoulders. This is what it is in general to preach Christ Jesus, the Lord. And in particular, to preach Christ is to hold him forth, not just as a lawgiver to tell people what to do, to be obeyed, but chiefly as the law fulfiller, to be believed in, for pardon, for forgiveness, is to tell sinners that this is the one who kept God's law in your behalf. 
It's to preach his righteousness offered to sinners in need of that righteousness. It's to preach him as the very essence of everlasting life. It's to represent him to poor, perishing sinners as the one who suffered in their place in order that they might be forgiven of all of their sins, in order that his righteousness might be put to their account. It's to preach Christ in such a way as to exhibit his divine fullness, the freeness of his abounding grace, his mighty power to save, his willingness to save, along with that power. It's to represent him as everything that poor, lost, guilty, sin-burdened sinners need. It is to offer Jesus to sinners without money and without price. To preach Christ is to make him the grand center of the great variety of subjects that we teach and preach as we go through the Bible. Whatever our theme, let's lift our Savior high on high. The great evangelist Roland Hill, the great awakening, he once said, preach nothing down with the devil and nothing up but Jesus Christ. And with respect to the manner of our preaching, preaching Christ, it implies that we aim at his honor, at his glory, and not our own. Our grand aim is to advance his interests in the world and not ours. Men can preach Christ as the subject matter of their sermons, as we've just seen, and yet not do it for Christ, but for themselves. They can use his name in their sermons, but end up making the precious truths of the gospel subservient, the advancement, you see, of the great idol of their heart, which is self. But to preach Christ truly, it means to make his honor, to make his, his glory the, the thing that is desired. And it's that sinners might worship him. It's that sinners might serve him, that he might be the center, that he might be their goal. This is diametrically opposite to preaching ourselves. As J. Sidlow Baxter put it, no man who is full of himself can ever truly preach the Christ who emptied himself. And also Paul adds, and this is the third thing that we find in these words here in 2 Corinthians 4-5. He says, we preach ourselves as bondservants for Jesus' sake. He presents Jesus Christ as Lord, himself as a bondservant, as a slave, the lowliest kind of servant. A servant, especially a slave, he doesn't labor for himself but for others. And here Paul speaks of himself as the servant, the slave of God's people. But this servitude has a glorious connection. His labors in the interest of serving God's people, his labors in the interest of serving the church, is all for Jesus, he says. For Jesus' sake, he puts these things together. And so the grand motive that motivates his servitude in the church is love for Christ. It's the honor of Christ. He wants them to be holy because this will bring glory to Jesus. He's not a slave to their every whim and wish. All of his service in the church is rendered, yes, for their sakes, but ultimately and supremely for Jesus' sake. Everything he does for their well-being, it's governed by the fact that as blood-brought saints, they are to bring glory to their Redeemer. Well, these are just a few of the thoughts. Some of them wise them in different words. Many of them 
that can be traced back to that wonderful address that David Bostwich delivered so many years ago. Well, as you, as we think about these things, and I want to just have a couple of concluding words before we go to this afternoon. The first thing I want to say is pray for your pastors that we will be conformed to this model. Ours is a high calling. We're called God's servants. Obviously, we fall far short of this high calling when we behave as if we're our own masters. It was a great sin when the Israelites despised the man of God called my servant Moses. But it was also a stain on God's name when Moses behaved as if he was his own Lord. And when he struck the rock, instead of speaking to it as God had told him, he was treating himself as Lord. And God took this very serious. He was not being honored among God's people, he said. He took it so seriously that he kept Moses out of the promised land. So pray for us that we will not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus the Lord. And pray that God will raise up leaders in this place that are governed by this grand principle. And as we wait on God concerning whether or not to lay hands on on a man in this place, I can think of no higher aspiration for him and for us is that he might preach not himself but Christ Jesus the Lord and himself, your servant, for Jesus' sake. And whether this man or whether any other man in days to come is a pastor in this place, may it be that nobody becomes a pastor for decades to come in this place but somebody that doesn't preach himself but Christ Jesus the Lord and himself your servant for Jesus' sake. Such a ministry, it would, if we, if it's contrary to this, if he, if this, if if a man is raised up, you see, that is under the dominion of a mercenary spirit or under the dominion of a self-promoting spirit, it would merely perpetuate, you see, and reignite the awful apostasy that took place back in Eden. Instead of counteracting it, it would underline it. And so may God raise up leaders in this place that have forsaken this pursuit of of having self as their grand aim, and then rather that they might seek the glory of God. May there be a generation of pastors who have a servant's heart for God's people, and even more so, men after God's own heart, as David was, whom God could call my servant, David. And then secondly and finally, let all of us search our own hearts in the sight of our all-seeing God to see whether this contrary spirit is in us. All of us are called upon to serve one another. We sang that hymn that, that speaks of bearing one another's burdens and walking the mile together and the, and the like. We're called to serve each other. And above all, to serve God. And all the various roles that we serve in the church, let us search our hearts to see if this detestable enemy of God is lurking underneath. If isn't this that makes us get this little irritation that comes within us against that other person because of what they said and maybe because of that person's uh, acceptance with others. This wretched tendency to make our own desires, to make our own glory the idol 
upon which we dote. And as pastors, we must ever be on guard lest this contrary spirit creep into our hearts and go with us into our studies, go with us into the pulpit, and then go back with us as we go home. Our grand aim must be that of conducting ourselves as the servants of the Lord and as servants of God's people, for Jesus' sake. And may all of us devote ourselves with greater devotion, with greater zeal, with greater drive, with greater self-denial, that we might give ourselves to the great glorious honor of our great and glorious God and of his glorious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and bless you that you have set before us so many arresting and striking statements that we find in the Bible that are the kind of things that ought to be written upon our hearts forever. We pray that these words that we have considered would be burnt into our hearts, especially those of us that would be leaders among your people. But all of us, we do pray that we would have this same kind of a desire, that we would not be devoted to ourselves and promote ourselves, but rather that we would serve one another, serve our God. Give us, Lord, this grace. All too easy, all too easily, we, we go right back to where Adam went. We make ourselves the center of our lives. Keep us from this, O Lord. Enable us to be like the Apostle Paul was, as he commended himself in his humble way to these Corinthians, that they too, so filled with pride, and so filled with admiration of people that are, that, are, that are the great ones of the world. We pray, Lord, that you'd be pleased to deliver us from that spirit and make us to be like the Apostle Paul, those that are devoted to the honor and the glory of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray it all in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.